Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And on August uh, 28, 1963, Dr. King refused to remain silent about so many things that mattered. And he expressed those things in one of his most famous speeches, I Have a Dream. And I want to share that with you today. I Have a Dream by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination 100 years later. The Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity 100 years later. The life of the Negro is languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we have come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And we refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we have come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nations from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time 
to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there's an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will neither be rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But there is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on a high plane of dignity and discipline. We cannot allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to distrust all white people. For many of our white brothers as evidenced by their presence here today have come to realize that their destiny is tied up in our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. But as we walk, we must make the pledge to always march ahead. We can never turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the city. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We cannot be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity with signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come here fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom has left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia and go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and the ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, 
So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in Mississippi, a, a state that is sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor, with his lips, dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, right down in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls and walk together as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places shall be made plain and the crooked places shall be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is the hope which I return to the South with. With this hope, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. With this hope, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day when all of God's children will sing with the new meaning, my country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to become a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from the stone mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mohill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. And when we let freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men, white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, We'll be able to join hands in singing the words of that old Negro spiritual. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. I just feel led for us to pray before Pastor John comes. Can we pray? 
Father God, Lord, we just come before you in deep need, desperate for you, Lord. God, I'm so thankful for how far you've brought us, and yet my heart is broken for how far we have to go. This speech given 60 years ago, and parts of it still relevant today, sadly. God, I pray that you would move us forward and it would be the body of Christ that leads the way. So Jesus, thank you for your word that now we get to hear and receive that makes this a reality for our lives, that you have broken down the dividing wall of hostility in the cross of Jesus, and we are so grateful. And we give you glory today in your precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, South City Church. I bring you greetings from St. Mark Baptist Church here in Little Rock, where I'm the pastor of assimilation at St. Mark with Dr. Philip L. Pointer. I'm grateful to Pastor Drew for giving me the opportunity to come and continue this series that you all have been going through in the book of Ephesians, which is one of my favorite books from the Apostle Paul. He spent most of, the most time of any other local church body uh, with the Ephesians church, almost three years with this church. And as he was getting ready to leave, he fell on their necks and they fell on his necks and wept. So this is Paul's love letter to the Ephesians. And he's telling them some things that he wants them to know as he is absent in the body and not present with them, but wants to tell them a few things. A couple of things I want to share with you all before we dive into this text in Ephesians 2 is that Martin Luther King is one of my personal mentors, I would say, from afar. I read all of his books growing up as a kid. I read The Strength to Love. I read Where Do We Go From Here? And ultimately, I only applied to one college out of high school, and that was the college that Martin Luther King attended at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, because he had such a profound impact in my life. So hearing his words 60 years later have really touched my heart on today. And I want to get the football reference out of the way today and tell you all, uh, since it is Super Bowl Sunday, about the audible that happened during the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech. As he is going through his personal notes toward the end of the speech, if you go and watch it, he goes away from his script. And someone on the stage has caused him to go away from his script. And that is the gospel artist, Mahalia Jackson. As she's sitting on the stage, she's heard him preach previously in the city of Detroit. And she says to him, tell him about the dream, Martin. And Martin says, okay, Mahalia, I got you. And he proceeds to tell them about this dream that he has. So apart from this audible, from this black woman on the stage, we would not have that portion of the I Have a Dream speech. So we're grateful for her. So when you think about those audibles that happened tonight, I want you to think about Mahalia Jackson. 
We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 on this morning and look at the second half of that book. Last week, Pastor Drew uh, masterfully worked through the first 10 verses where it talks about us being reconciled to God. Well, today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be reconciled to one another. Let's read the first, these 11 through 22, and then we're going to dive into the text as we hear from God and what he has to say to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been bought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to proclaim your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Redeemer. May this word fall on good ground. May it convict. May it encourage. But more than that, may it bring you glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm glad that we heard the I have a dream speech this morning because I think the text that we just looked at really proclaims God's dream for his people. And that dream paints a picture that I want to use to shape our time together this morning. What is that picture? What is God's dream for people? Paul says that God's dream and goal for his people is simple. And that is this, that God desires to have a house without walls. I'll say that again. God desires to have a house without walls. One of the most powerful symbols of the Cold War is the Berlin Wall. After World War II, the Axis powers split Germany in two, between East Germany and West Germany. 
the city of Berlin was also split into between East Berlin and West Berlin. And in 1961, East Germany decided to put up a structure that began as barbed wire, but wound up becoming a stone wall between East Berlin and West Berlin. The Berlin Wall itself covered over 65 miles. It was 12 foot high and it was concrete and had barriers. But the name is actually a little bit of a misnomer because it wasn't the Berlin Wall, it was the Berlin Walls. There were two walls on either side and right in the middle, they had spike strips, they had guard dogs, and they had landmines to prevent people from crossing over from East Berlin to West Berlin. And if that wasn't enough, they said, let's add a little bit more. So they had 306 guard towers between that 65-mile stretch of land so that guards could look out to make sure nobody could cross over between the two. In the middle, that area that they called in the middle, they called it the death strip. They tore down all the buildings in the middle so that guards could have a clear line of sight for anyone who was trying to cross over from East Berlin to West Berlin. The Berlin Wall was an unnatural barrier that caused many family members who actually used to live across the street from one another to not be able to visit one another. And here's the ir ironic part. Right in the middle of the death strip, there was a church. You want to know the name of that church? It was called the Church of Reconciliation. Unfortunately, the Church of Reconciliation could not meet because they built the Berlin Wall. And in 18, 1985, they actually had to demolish the church so that the wall could be reinforced. And even though that wall ultimately came down in 1990, throughout human history, we have learned this truth, you all. It's much easier to build a wall than it is to build a bridge. When it comes to the American church over the past several decades, reconciliation efforts have gone largely unsuccessful. The old adage is still true. Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in America. And I would argue that Monday through Saturday don't look much different that our dinner tables don't look diverse, that our social outings don't look diverse, that other environments that we've built don't look diverse. We built these walls and silos of belonging that may have done more harm than they've done good. And I think that when it comes to reconciliation, the church itself has found itself locked in the dead zone of cultural conflict. And my fear is that if we don't deal with the walls that hinder our reconciliation, we'll find ourselves unable to represent to this world what the household of faith really looks like. But it starts with understanding this simple truth, and that is that God is building his church. 
And he's building a church to be a house without walls. Let me be clear. Jesus is not coming back on a donkey or an elephant. Jesus is not coming back for University of Arkansas Fayetteville graduates only. He's coming back for other folks, y'all. He's not coming back for a divided church. He's coming back for a united church, a church that understands his prayer in John 17 that we be one, just as he and the Father are one. But that necessitates that we, as the church, actually acknowledge the walls that we put up to prevent that kind of unity. It, it, it says that we have to really work towards being a church without walls. So how do we do that? How do we become this church that doesn't have walls? Paul tells us today in our passage exactly how we go about it. And he gives us four ways that we can work towards becoming a house without walls. Here's what he says. First, Paul says, you need to remember your separation. Remember your separation. Paul begins this text. He says, therefore, remember. Now, therefore, he says, he just laid out in Ephesians how we are reconciled to God. That they were once a people dead in their trespasses and sin, but that God himself, through his gift of grace, had made them alive. And he says, in light of that truth, I want you to know something, that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you all should walk in. In other words, Paul says, in light of God's grace, I need you to live a life that reflects that grace. I need you to be able to live from grace. The grace that God has given to you. And to start in verse number 11, he tells us exactly how to live by grace. He says, remember. Verse 11, therefore, remember. Now, Paul doesn't waste commands in his letters. As a matter of fact, he generally waits until later to talk about imperatives and commands. But here he commands them to remember. He gives them a command to remember, he says that God's saving grace should always cause us to remember. And he says that that process starts by remembering our separation. He specifically addresses Gentile Christians here. He says to them, you were separated in two very specific ways. First, you were separated socially. In the text, it says that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And he also calls them the uncircumcised in verse number 11. For thousands of years, the Gentiles were treated as outsiders. They were treated as other by the people of Israel. In fact, the term uncircumcised is a derogatory term. Y'all remember when David stepped up to fight Goliath? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the Lord. So when the Gentiles heard this term, they felt the social distance, no pun intended, that they were seeing, right? So, so their second separation here 
was spiritual. Verse number 12 says they were separated from Christ, the Messiah who had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Before coming to faith in him, they were separated from Christ. In addition to that, they were also without God in the world, verse 12 tells us. Before hearing the gospel, they worshipped other gods. They knew nothing about this Yahweh, this God who was the creator of the universe. Why is it that Paul is reminding them of their wicked past? Well, I think it's because Paul wants them to remember their past so that it shapes their behavior in the future. Why is that important? Because when you remember the grace that you live from, you'll work towards the life that God has called you to. Grace does something different in your life. It causes you to do things differently because you remember who you were, and now you remember where God wants to take you to. Scripture is clear about the importance of remembering. The Jewish folks were called to remember their exodus from Egypt. They were called to remember how God kept them in the wilderness. They were, God, they were, called, to, they were called to remember how God had taken them to the promised land. In the same way, us as Gentile believers, because we are Gentiles, we are not the center of this story. We're called to remember the bondage of sin that God has delivered us from. To remember that the presuppositions that we have had or may still have about people still exist. To remember some of the stereotypes and assumptions that we tend to make without thinking. We are called to remember how God has kept us in our own wilderness. That when we fall short, that we'll be able to extend ourselves some grace when we miss the mark of trying to relate to other people. Because when we remember our past, it really helps us to behave in our future. What about you? When you feel yourself nudged in the direction not to extend grace to other people, do you remember your own separation? Do you remember how God extended his grace to you? Today I want to remind you that we all need to remember where God bought us from so that we can get to where God is taking us to. That's because a house without, without walls makes us remember our separation. But it also requires something else from the text. And it requires that we remember our Redeemer. We remember our Redeemer. Having dealt with our reconciliation to God in verses 1 through 10... Paul now deals with our reconciliation to one another. And he says there's only one way that we're going to be reconciled to each other. And that's through remembering our Redeemer. Paul says just as God was the active agent, the radical grace that was extended to us when we were dead in our sins, now we're going to find that Christ himself is the active agent agent reconciling us to one another. Starting in verse number 13, he says, but now in Christ, you who are far off have been bought near by the blood of Christ. And then he goes on and tells us how he bought us near in verse number 14. For he himself 
is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, Paul here is referencing an actual wall that is placed up in the Jewish temple. And that wall was to separate the court of the Gentiles from those who had access to the Jewish accoutrements of, on the temple. So in that particular wall, there was a sign. And that sign had a simple warning. It said, no Gentiles allowed. Anybody who crossed that line could be punished by death. And the Jews took that mentality into their everyday interactions with the Gentile people. They had taken circumcision, something that was meant to be symbolic, and actually made it ultimate in their lives. So much so that the sign of circumcision had caused them to put up signs that divided people. You know, there was a time in our country where this played itself out in a very real way where the same culture that stood and heard Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech had men and women who thought it was normal to put up signs too. Signs over restaurants, over water fountains, over buses, and over schoolhouses that communicated a message to black people in our country. No coloreds allowed. And the unfortunate reality is that many of these folks were good Christian people. But they misunderstood the gospel. Because people who experience God's radical grace cannot help but extend that grace to other people. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, people who have been reconciled to Christ have been given this ministry and message of reconciliation. In other words, reconciled people reconcile with people. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have our own walls too. Walls that determine who's in and who's out, who's clean or unclean, who's good or who's bad. Our social media timelines are full of wall-creating issues, whether it's public health, school curriculum, or social economic differences, brick by brick. We build barriers that prevent people, even Christians, from fruitful relationship. But Paul steps into this tension here, and he steps into our tension too and says, Christ has come and broken down that dividing wall of hostility. And look at the means through which he does it here in verse number 13. He does it in his flesh. It is the death of Christ on the cross that takes thousands of years of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and imposes peace 
and reconciliation on those groups. Brothers and sisters, the only solution to the racial, political, and social animus that we're experiencing right now in our world is the cross of Jesus. That's what Paul says here in verse number 15 and 16, that Christ's death on the cross was meant to create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ was killed so that our hostilities could be killed. Or as one commentator put it, the slain also serves as the slayer. That Christ was slain, but it was also him who slayed hostilities that divide us. So if we really want to live in a house without walls, it requires that we remember our Redeemer. A Redeemer who over and over again in this text is called our peace. The peace that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 when he calls him the Prince of Peace. When it comes to social hostility, Christ makes peace where there is conflict. And if we really want to live in a house without walls, then we need to trust that prince of peace to redeem every broken relationship that we have. No matter how bad they think we are, no, no matter how unredeemable we think it is, that the prince of peace can come in and redeem and restore that broken relationship. Not only are you required to remember your Redeemer, but we're also required to remember our new family. After reminding the Gentile Christians that they now have access in one faith, in one spirit to the Father, in verse 18, Paul says this in verse number 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of of the household of God. In this culture, access to anyone with power often implied that you were able to enter their majestic imperial buildings. So Paul says that now that you have access through Christ in one spirit to the Father, this Trinitarian formula that Pastor Drew talked about showing up again here, I want to remind you what that means, it means that you now have moved from strangers and aliens to become fellow citizens. And even better than that, you're not just citizens. You're actually members of the same household, the household of God. In other words, you now have a new family. And that just as you live in a, in a house with your biological family, we now live in the household of God with our spiritual family. I played a lot of basketball growing up, and I played in high school, and I would go out to our local park and play quite often. But one day I was playing, and I came down on one of my teammates' foot and turned my ankle. Immediately my ankle started swelling. I knew for a fact that it was broken. I was getting ready to start my high school season. I was devastated because I knew I would, I would miss time. So I hobbled home and walked through the door, and I was crying like a baby as a high schooler. And my, 
my mom walked up to me. And the interesting thing is, as she started our conversation, she didn't start our conversation by asking me why I was in pain. She didn't ask me why it was I was hurting. As a matter of fact, she said, what's wrong? Where are you hurt? And then she told me, how is it that I can help you? My mom's words were a balm even before I got a chance to go to medical staff and get my situation fixed. I think when it comes to remembering our new family, here's how we can recognize if you really live in a house without walls. Think about the questions that you ask when other parts of the body in Christ are hurting. I'm from a small town in Georgia called Brunswick, Georgia. Many people don't know Brunswick or didn't know Brunswick before two years ago when a young man by the name of Ahmad Arbery was running down the street and was chased down and shot by two gentlemen in a truck. My brother coached this young man as a high school player. I lived less than a mile from where Ahmad was shot. To say that it had an impact on me and on our community would be an understatement. The good news is I attended seminary many, many years ago with a lot of brothers and sisters that I did life with every day, that we shared table together. And those people were the ones who reached out to me, white brothers and sisters, and they asked the right questions. They didn't say, John, why are you mad? Why is this bothering you? They said, where are you hurting? And they said, how is it that I can help? Being part of the same household really starts by asking the right questions of those in the household. That's what Paul tells us in the text in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. We're commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Remembering that you're part of a new family means being part of a body and recognizing when other parts of the body are in pain, even when you're not personally impacted. It's saying when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. So this season, I want to challenge you. Lean into the pain of folks who are not part of your inner circle, but are part of your body. Even if you might not understand it. I want us to avoid putting up walls of apathy and think through ways in which we can empathize what Paul calls people who are part of our household. Remember, come, imagine coming home and not being able to have conversations with people in your house about things that are hurting them. You wouldn't do that with your wife, your kids, people in your household. But, but God says here, we're all part of one household. And we're not having conversations about the pain that's happening in our own house. 
Paul's final exhortation here to the Gentile believers is the bedrock, I believe, of this passage. He says that after you've remembered your separation, your Redeemer, and you're part of a new family, you need to remember your new home. Paul closes this text with a majestic description of the new home for the new family that he just described. He says here, this new home has two important features, I believe, in the text. First of all, it's made up of unique, diverse, beautiful, and eclectic group of people who make up this new household. And speaking of this new household, he says here in verse number 21, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Now, Scripture reminds us elsewhere that we are stones, part of God's new temple. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as the spiritual house. This is a very important distinction here. Why is it that, that Peter says that we are living stones? Nowhere in Scripture are we called living bricks. We're called living stones. Why is that? Well, because bricks are the same size and shape, whereas stones are diverse sizes and diverse shapes. What am I saying here? When it comes to the kingdom of God, unity does not mean uniformity. And reconciliation should never lead to cultural assimilation. Somehow, in God's providence, he takes all these people from different cultures, from different socioeconomic classes and genders, and joins us all together. C.S. Lewis puts the value of diversity in perspective in his book, The Screwtape Letters, when he describes Christians in this way. He says, God's set an an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of them. When he talks of their losing themselves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. God places an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of us. And even after we are redeemed, he gives us back our own personalities and our cultures. Brothers and sisters, when we enter the kingdom of God, we don't lose our distinctions. We find our fit. We take our unique stones and we place them where God has placed them in God's household. This is what the Apostle John is getting at in Revelation chapter 21, verse 26, when he describes the new Jerusalem. He writes this. He says, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, that word ethnos, the same word that Paul uses here for the Gentiles. He says that the new creation, each one of us will bring the glory and honor of our unique cultural experiences. So when you all get collard greens in heaven, you're welcome. 
The new home also boasts one other feature that is the most important feature, I think, in this house without walls. And that is that this new home has an unmovable, unshakable cornerstone. Listen to Paul's words in verse number 20. He says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, in this culture, the cornerstone was placed at the foundation of buildings, at the corner, and it served at what is called the setting point. It was the one stone that held the building together. If you removed it, the building would come tumbling down. And even though that cornerstone sounds like an enviable position, when it comes to Christ as cornerstone, there was a price to pay. The psalmist reminds us of that price, and that price was rejection. Psalm chapter 118, verse 22 says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There was only one path that would lead to Jesus becoming the cornerstone of this building. And that path was rejection, crucifixion, and ultimately his death. So that the sins that we find inherent in the walls and isms of our culture, whether it's racism, classism, ageism, sexism, ableism, they all required a rejected and crucified cornerstone. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It was necessary for him to be rejected and crucified so that all of our sins, all of our isms could be forgiven so that we could live in this new household of faith. My wife and I set out to buy our first house many, many years ago, and we thought it was going to be easy. We walked into one house, and it was beautifully laid out. It had an immaculate bathroom. The kitchen was to die for, and the floor plan was exactly what we wanted in a home. But beyond that aesthetic beauty, there was a problem that lurked underneath. Because when we got the home inspected, we soon discovered that the foundation was cracked and irreparable. And ultimately, we had to walk away from this home because despite checking all of our boxes on the inside, the bad foundation ruined the whole house. Brothers and sisters, if we are to be the house of God, if we are to be this house without walls, we cannot put our primary focus on the aesthetic beauty of our worship services or the immaculate programming that we have for our people. We need to always ensure that when we inspect our house, that we find that cornerstone intact. The Prince of Peace who brings us peace. My prayer today is that we leave this place remembering 
remembering our separation, remembering our Redeemer, remembering our new family and our new house, but ultimately remembering that cornerstone who holds us all together and moves us towards that beautiful vision that we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where every nation and every tribe and every tongue surrounds the throne of our God, worshiping at, our, at his feet, not worried about our differences, but what it is that brought us together. And that is our exalted Christ living in a house without walls. Now that's a dream worth living for. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for a reminder today that we are all in this together. That we are now part of the household of God, the household of faith. Brothers and sisters. And that any individual pain felt in the house should be felt by all of us collectively. And that we are only able to tear down any walls of hostility through this great Redeemer who shed his blood, whose skin was torn off his back for us to walk in this newness of life, this new creation, this new man that Paul talks about here in this text where all those dividing walls of hostility have been torn down. May we leave this place not building any more walls, but making efforts to build bridges, to live out this ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians that is our ministry for life. May we remember your great sacrifice so that we make sacrifices in our relationships to allow your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as we will experience in heaven. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.